We're pleased to have with us our brother Blair Smith Smith with us this afternoon. And in connection with his remarks, he has asked for the third chapter of Daniel to be read. Daniel, the third chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was threescore cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made, well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, 
our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning of the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth, come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So read the third chapter of the book of Daniel. And our brother Blair Smith will now address us on this chapter, and his subject being Beyond the Fiery Furnace. Brother Blair. Brethren, there they were, some two million homeless, wandering people, camped near the base of a mountain, the top of which they could not see. For from the top of the mountain there arose 
these tremendous clouds of smoke. And all around them there was the sound of thunder and the sight of light. And the sound of the trumpeter of the cornet, off in the distance with its shrill note, calling all men on this occasion to recognize that the God of heaven was about to condescend to speak to men. And so these two million homeless wanderers, nonetheless having proud, arrogant, unbending wills, listened for a moment. As God Almighty addressed the people from the top of the burning, fire-crowded mountain, there came these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Some 1,000 years later, after these same people, their descendants, had gone through a great many experiences which should have indeed enriched their faith in God, which indeed should have strengthened their trust in the Almighty, Periods of ups and downs, of good times and of bad times, of times of turning to the Lord and of times of falling back into the sinfulness which is natural to man. A thousand years later, because of the wickedness of the people, the leaders and the people themselves, God had seen fit to overthrow the last of the kings who sat on the throne of the kingdom the Lord. So he said to that last wicked king, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I shall give it him. And so that king was overthrown, and the people, the vestige, the remnant, that which was left of these two million people who had been delivered miraculously by the hand of Almighty God were taken from their land, which they had been given as the result of a promise to their faithful grandfather Abraham. So they were ripped up by the roots and taken over to a foreign, a strange land of Babylon. And there under the hand or the heel of a mighty tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar, those people rested for a number of years, very uncomfortable in the circumstances in which they had found themselves. There were in that crowd a few 
remained faithful to their God. There were a few who remembered that thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. So of those people who have known the blessing of Almighty God, the sustenance which he gave them during that period of wandering in the wilderness, all the many blessings he had given them after they came into the land, giving them a king who was so righteous as the man David, giving them all the peace they knew during the reign of the time of Solomon, all those things which God had given unto them, a few written, a few were faithful. And as very young men, we find in the book of Daniel, there were a few brought over. Nebuchadnezzar chose some of the choice ones. He chose Daniel. He chose Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do we recall the words of Daniel in the first chapter in the eighth verse? Daniel was a very young man when he made this statement. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And such was the spirit of those other three faithful ones of God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Interestingly enough, they went through a period like unto that of Joseph when he was sold into slavery down in Egypt. He came into favor with this man Potiphar. And we know that he was set over a great portion of the land of Egypt, and he was second only unto the Pharaoh when things were finally accomplished in God's plan. He began to become favored by Potiphar. We know the story that our brother referred to this morning. We know that there began to be those who were jealous of him, and they began to scheme because his principles were higher than their own. They began to figure ways in which to strike back at that holy man of God, Joseph. So we see our men in the book of Daniel in the same circumstance. In another land far to the east, under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, we find these men beginning to gain favor. Why do you suppose they gained favor? Was it not because of the very act of faithfulness, the high standard of dependability, of reliability, of trustworthiness, which they had demonstrated in their carrying out of their daily activities? They did not complain about the assignments they had been given. What did the children of Israel do down in Egypt? They complained about the rough and hard and harsh taskmasters they had. And God delivered them. But they didn't like his being a taskmaster either. So they complained and they were time and time and time again relieved of the hardships which fell upon them only to fall back into a state of even greater sinfulness than that which they had known before. Here are these few faithful men who remembered what God had said. They acted on the basis of the principles they had learned of God and they were trustworthy. They were reliable. They were hardworking. They did not absorb in this 
brethren and friends, is a highly important principle and point for us to learn. They did not absorb the principles or the kind of thinking of the people around them, and it did not matter that they had labor unions, if you will, workers' groups, all kinds of things that, that help us today to gain favor of the man next door. They did not look for a way in which they could work less and less and be paid more and more. They did not look for idleness, which, according to some, is the devil's workshop. They kept their hand to the plow and worked hard to accomplish the assigned task. Whatever their hands found to do, they did it heartily. They did it with all their might. They did it as unto God. And because they did it and became trustworthy and reliable and absolutely dependable, they came into favor with even these godless men such as Potiphar and such as Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened? With our men here in the chapter on the fiery furnace, we find that jealousy rears its ugly head in the eighth verse. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. And what could they criticize them for? They could not go before Nebuchadnezzar and say that these people have been sloughing off the jobs they've been given to do. They have turned over their work to us. They have given short measure. They could not in any sense criticize the performance. They criticized them for omission of one thing. They did not bow down and worship and serve the God which Nebuchadnezzar had built out on the plain of Dura. The only thing which these servants of the Lord could be criticized for in the eyes of those people was because they would not bow down to one who was made of wood or of stone or of gold or of silver. Thou shalt make unto thee no graven images, neither shalt thou bow down and serve them. And so they would not. For 900 years they had been told this, and now they remembered it. As with Daniel, they purposed in their heart that they would not defile themselves with the portion of the king. Nothing could change their minds because their minds were stayed on God. The jealousy of the people who saw them rising in favor in spite of the fact that they would not bow down to this image which Nebuchadnezzar had created was so great. And jealousy, we understand, has the capacity to twist and to warp and to distort the thinking to such a degree that things which might previously have seemed unreasonable now take on all the logic and reason they need. So they set forth on their dirty chore. They convinced Nebuchadnezzar that these people were acting defiantly of his rule. Here was a man who, as the laws of the Medes and the Persians, the pride of man, you know, is a tremendous thing when it gets down deep inside the heart. Here was a proud and an arrogant man who up to this time had had no one tell him they would not obey what he had said they were to do. Up until this time, he was satisfied with the service he got from these men. He was highly pleased with the work they had done. But the work of these jealous men was to con uh, convince Nebuchadnezzar 
that these men were not doing what they should be doing. And here were three little Jews who dared to stand in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and say that it doesn't make any difference to us whether you do or you don't. We won't serve your God. And as a matter of fact, so sure was their faith in their God that when Nebuchadnezzar approaches them and says, Is this thing true I hear about you? Have you failed to walk out there onto the plain of Dura and bow down to that great golden image that I have placed there? When he asked them what they had done, they acknowledged indeed that they had not and had no intention of bowing before a false god. So, here's another point. They recognized with the wisdom which comes from a closer familiarity with God's principles, which do not change through the ages, that God sometimes spares, but sometimes he chooses to have us walk through the fiery furnace. So they said, don't worry about us, Nebuchadnezzar. We won't take much of your time to answer your question in this matter. So far as we are concerned, if it be, in the 17th and 18th verses, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, and this is the part that's sometimes difficult for us to accept, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, it doesn't change it one iota, we still will not serve thy God, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. It's like Moses who said that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. If it be God's will that these men be saved and be brought safely through the fiery furnace, then God's will would be accomplished. And if it were not, they had finally reached a point where their faith was so strong they were willing to die in the effort. These jealous men had no occasion. We're told in 1 Timothy 5, the 14th verse, Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. These men had so conducted themselves that they did not have a valid complaint against the children of God. The jealous ones, the enemies of God's people, had no real cause for criticism of the way in which they had conducted themselves. And all they managed to do was to arouse the ire and the anger and the pride and the obstinacy of this man Nebuchadnezzar. And like Herod on the occasion when John the Baptist spoke against him, and Herod was reminded that he had promised uh, Salome anything she asked for, anything within his power to give, rather than to go back on his word, and this shows you how distorted men's consciences can sometimes become, rather than to go back on his word, he would keep his promise even if it meant to be head and innocent man. And so Nebuchadnezzar, though he saw these men in a favorable light previously, was so angered 
His thoughts were so distorted. His powers of reason were so out of line because of the pride and the arrogancy which had entered into his heart that on this occasion he said, if they will not bow down to this golden image, cast them into the fiery furnace and just to make sure, heat it seven times hotter than it normally would be. So much so that the men who threw them into the furnace were killed in the act. And what happened? Down into the furnace they went, into this inferno, and there they stood, bound with ropes. Nebuchadnezzar comes over to look and he said, didn't you put three men in there? But I see four men walking. And they aren't bound. They're loose. What happened? The fire that burned so intensely down in the heart of that furnace could only destroy the bonds that held these men in slavery. So the fire of tribulation through which we walk as we go through our individual fiery furnaces is only capable of, by, of burning the bonds that hold us in slavery to sin. For the fire in this instance was under the control of Almighty God. Indeed, we have been promised that there shall no temptation overtake us, which is not first common to man and not able to be withstood. Second. God will not tempt us above that we are able to bear, but will, with the temptation, give us also a means of escape. No matter how trying our circumstances may be, if we can see beyond the fiery furnace to the eternal things of the Almighty, we can see an end to our tribulation, a way up, out of the inferno, and we shall be relieved of the bonds which hold us in slavery. But we are admonished in Peter that we must be very careful that we do not suffer as an evildoer. Had those men of God justifiably been criticized by those jealous ones of Nebuchadnezzar, God would not on that occasion have delivered them as he did. It was because they suffered as innocent men we are told that we must not suffer as an evildoer because if we do, we are justified in such suffering. We are indeed deserving of the punishment we get. But we are told that if you suffer as a Christian, then count it all joy when you endure persecution for the sake or the cause of Christ. We are told that the apostles on this occasion Rejoice that they should be counted worthy to suffer affliction for his name. So as we walk through our fiery furnace, we must be careful that we suffer not as an evildoer, so that the punishment is justified. But we must be innocent of those transgressions or those things which men find offensive in us. God promised in Isaiah... 43rd chapter, he promised the children of Israel, in the second verse, when, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And with those thoughts in mind, it was quite possible 
for these three faithful men of God to walk through the fire, and lo, there came an angel who walked along with them. And so when the fire, the intense heat of the fire gets so great that the, the airwaves are distorted, we cannot see clearly, we must then begin to look with the eye of faith, for if we would but put out our hands somewhere near the angel of the Lord encamped round about if we fear Somewhere near there is an angel able to deliver. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognized that no other God could deliver. And this God, the God of Daniel, and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had done it. Why do you suppose it is done this way? In Matthew 5, verse 16, we're told to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now it is interesting to us as we read these accounts, which are given for our admonition and for our learning, to note that these men, as did Daniel, as did Joseph before him, give the credit to God. They did not take the credit to themselves. They let their light so shine before men. The thing for which they were given credit was not the thing which Nebuchadnezzar had seen. Faithfulness, reliability, dependability, trustworthiness, hard work, diligent application to the things assigned them. It wasn't that. It was beyond that to a complete confidence in their God and in his ability to deliver them if he so chose. And so, having done their good work in such a way as to bring credit upon the name of God, they were delivered, and in addition, they were given even higher position at the end of their trial and tribulation. Back for a moment to those two million people at the base of the mountain. It had taken Moses only a fairly short while to bring them out of Egypt. But you know, he spent 40 years trying to get Egypt out of Israel. A very short while bringing Israel out of Egypt. Forty years didn't succeed in getting Egypt out of Israel. Let's think about that. As we live in a world today in which there has come to be a sort of air of respectable dishonesty, I suppose you might call it, in a day in which it's considered necessary and, in fact, quite all right to cheat a little on every score, not always to tell quite the whole truth, make sure that the facts you relate are those that are correct, but it doesn't make any difference if you handle them in such a way as to convey a wrong impression. 
the time when as children, and we laugh at this sort of thing, we cross our little fingers and we say to ourselves, if we say something and hold our hands behind our back with our fingers crossed, this goes back to Roman superstition, by the way. If we hold our fingers crossed, we can say anything we please and nothing will be held against us. We smile because that's childish. But how many times have we felt that we have told the facts, perhaps not quite all the facts, and maybe by the tone of our voice or those we withheld or the way in which we manipulated them and so forth, we might have succeeded in, in creating a wrong impression. At least we hope we didn't give away what we were holding of our dreams. You know, it didn't take long to get Israel out of Egypt. But they never did succeed in getting Egypt out of Israel. The thing that God children, the reason God's children were told under no circumstances were they to marry Canaanitish women was not because they were superior to those women, not because they would have bad blood, give them poor stock, have poor health, the, the circumstances of the land were such or anything of this sort. It was for one reason only, and that was that they should lead the children of God to make them worship other gods. And God began his message by saying, I am the Lord thy God, one who lives and does something for you. I brought you out of Egypt and got rid of your bonds. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not under any circumstances bow down and worship any of those things. And so God has always said to his people, if you live there, Get rid of those things which are turning you against me. And lest we get the wrong impression. Lest we think that all that God was concerned about was that our eyes might be shaped or our clothes might look like those Egyptians around us. God is not talking about the outward appearance. God is talking about something that is so deep down inside that if we could see it, we might not recognize it. For he tells us in Joel 2 to rend your heart and not your garment. It's easy enough to walk around in sackcloth and ashes. It's easy enough to make broad our phylacteries. It's easy enough to make the ribbon on the border of our garments so wide that even the most nearsighted person alive could still see it and know how holy we were. No, he says, Indeed, on the outside of this cup you have it very, very clean, but down inside it, he said, are dead men's bones. And so he says, rend your heart and not your garment. God wants us to recognize down deep inside us, not just on the words of our lips or the forms and the ceremonies and the things, the steps which we go through, sometimes perhaps to be seen of men that we have no other God before him. But he wants people to be able to see our good works done in the name of God and to be able to give glory to him. 
For indeed he tells us that as the fiery furnace, God himself is a consuming fire. And as he placed a flaming sword around the tree of life, lest sinful men without getting rid of their bonds of enslavement should put forth their hands and take and eat of the tree of life and in that terrible condition live forever. As he placed that flaming sword around the tree, so it shall remain. And so we shall not reach that day and stage and age when we can put forth our hands and take of the tree of life and live forever until the fire has burned out the impurities. Until the fire has reached down inside our hearts and caused us to rend our hearts and not our garments. And then we can reach forth and take of those healing leaves of the tree of life and live forever. Remember, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our trials and tribulations may seem at the moment, it's always hottest right near that fire. And as we get away from it and we see someone else suffering from it, we see it in a different light. But if we remember that we can reach forth our hand and take the hand of the angel of the Lord, which is able not necessarily to spare us the heat, but to keep us from being hurt by it. To bring us safely through it, and if it be the will of God, even through the, the channel of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Even Jesus was allowed to hang on the cross. Even the thing that came, that happened unto Jesus, was not uncommon to man. But there he hanged on the cross between two evil thieves and robbers. And he died the same way they did. But he was innocent. And so he counted it all joy that he might endure. For how did he do it? It was because it was for the joy that was set before him. He could see beyond his fiery furnace. And on the other side of the furnace, he realized that having the bonds that held him in slavery to a mortal nature, burned away by the fire of God's own design, he was able to live forevermore and to say that we should come to him and drink of the water of life. As Moses, who endured seeing him who is invisible, we, as we go through our individual and our own particular fiery furnaces, as we experience the circumstances through which God in his wisdom brings us, to be humble, to be brought to our knees, to feel down deep in our hearts that the impurities which rest in the ore of mortal flesh must be purged and burned out must recognize that close at hand there is the angel who is able to bring us safely through if we will but remain trustworthy, if we will but keep our faith in God, that under no circumstances, no matter what every other man alive does, no matter whatever the standards that may come to be those of the day in which we live, God is the same 
His principles are almighty and he does not need to change because he is right. And no matter what other pattern we may choose, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's only one way to serve God acceptably, and that is through obedience. What will he have us to do? To do justice, to love mercy, and to humble ourselves to walk with him, to offer our bodies a daily and a living sacrifice, to walk willingly through the fiery furnace, glad to have the impurities burned out of our being, that we might stand justified on that day. And then, only, through the grace of God. No matter how hard we work, no matter how long we work and wait and hope and pray, at the very best we shall be unprofitable servants. But God, we must remember, does not reward success. He rewards effort. It's the way in which we try honestly, completely, to do what he asks us to do. We're told in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And now in Revelation the 22nd chapter, 20th chapter first. We come to that period when the Apostle John, by inspiration, writes, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell are the grave, the margin says, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell or the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And it's beyond that fiery furnace that we choose to look to that part on the other side of the shore when there shall be nothing but life everlasting. And then in the 22nd chapter, the first five verses, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, that thing which we can only partake of when we have gone through the flaming. You notice it turned in every way. It is not possible to reach in and take of the tree of life without going through the flaming sword, which turns in every way. 
we must see that life rests only on the other side. It lies beyond the fiery furnace, which bears twelve manner of fruits, yieldeth her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their forehead. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let us remember that we are still trying to allow God in his own way and in his own good time to get Egypt out of Israel. We must go through the fiery furnace in order that the things which must be removed from us in our present state can be removed by design of God that we might enter into the gate of that city that we might live forever. Thank you.